This is an ABC podcast. Astrid Jorgensen is a musician and music director. She had a talent for teaching school kids, retirees and other musos to sing in choirs, but she couldn't figure out why her own friends didn't like to get out there and sing with other people. She knew if they tried it, they'd love it, but how to get them in the room? Eventually, Astrid struck upon a magic ingredient, beer. A few years back, Astrid took the stage at a Brisbane pub and taught the motley crew of strangers there to sing Slice of Heaven by Dave Dobbin. And thus, Pub Choir was born. Pub Choir is now a monthly, slightly boozy sing-along that sells out its larger and larger venues within minutes. And as Astrid makes clear, you'll be just as bad a singer at the end of a pub choir night as you were at the start, but you will care a little less. Hi, Astrid. Hello, Sarah. I'm so delighted to be here. There was a pub choir last night in Brisbane. What did you sing? We sung Creep by Radiohead. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm feeling a little rusty, but I'm hoping my voice is a little more sultry. It's got a different texture to it, courtesy of that. So why that song? Well, it's nearly Halloween. Um, We don't go too hard into holidays to make anyone feel isolated or anything like that. But I did think it would be nice to do something a little spooky. And it is one of the biggest rock songs of all time and one of the delights of pub choir is presenting songs that people know and love and making them fresh for the audience. That is my goal. I want them to feel like we can shape songs anew. Um, and so I hope we did that last night. Because it's, it's an interesting one in that it's such a kind of heartfelt, heartbroken lament of feeling like a total loser and not even being noticed by the person you're obsessed with. So it's sort of like like the absolute um, torture adolescent song almost. How does the, the feel of that song change when it's being belted out by a couple of hundred people? Well, we had 1,600 people last night and I feel like everyone was able to tap into their inner loser. <laughs> like it felt it felt really powerful for us all to just like put some, some rock fists in the air and be like, I'm a weirdo together and just have a lovely time. And that's what pub choir is all about. We know that you're a weirdo, <laughs> but we want you to feel good about it. There's a sweary bit in that. Song Was that embraced by the crowd? It sure was, yes. I feel like um, permission to an entire room of strangers to yell the (laughs) F-bomb at a choir rehearsal. That really goes down a treat. If you're looking to do that at your own choir rehearsal, I can highly recommend it. (laughs) What's your earliest music memory, Astrid? Like, what do you first remember hearing or singing along to as a kid? I think I must have been so precocious and annoying. But I think that my earliest music memory... I might have been about two and I'm the youngest of five children. So I've got four older brothers and they all had music lessons ahead of me. And I remember sitting in on one of their piano lessons. I don't know who it was. So sorry to all of them. (laughs) Collective brother. Collective brother. um, And someone was learning to play the happy farmer. It's this um, song from a Suzuki book and it goes, it's like this jolty, jaunty little tune on the piano. And whoever it was, was doing a bad job and they kept missing the notes and the lesson went on and on. And I remember when their piano lesson finished and their piano teacher left, I sat down at the piano and played it correctly. (laughs) And then I didn't stop playing it for like six months. And I would play the happy farmer 
at this like chubby little two-year-old walking around the house, sitting down at the piano, torturing my family, playing this song that I figured out. And it must have been so annoying, but um, I can still play that song and I still like it. <laughs> Did it feel incredibly powerful, like to be able to do this thing immediately that even your bigger older brothers couldn't do? I don't think I was conscious of anything. I could just hear where they were going wrong and I knew what it should be. And it's a fun song. So I, again, I was just having a lovely time and I'm sure everybody else was very annoyed. <laughs> but uh, that's that's what music is for me, is just um, finding your way through, comparing what you think internally with what the noises are outside and, and seeing if you can make the two a little bit closer together. So if your older brothers were learning an instrument, was it always inevitable that when the time came, you'd also be be getting music lessons? Yes, absolutely. Um, I know it is quite a common feature in, in many Asian households that violin and piano are a priority instrument. <laughs> um, and so that was the same for all of us. Um, none of that like tuba or anything, you know, like it's very serious intellectual instruments, violin and piano. So we all had lessons on that. Actually, one of my grandparents who lived in Singapore, my, my grandmother, because, you know, with five kids, I think money was a bit tight sometimes. She would send specifically money for us to have music lessons. So they were very highly prized um, by my parents. And, and we knew as kids it was important that we concentrate. <laughs> so you were learning music from an early age. But what happened for you to have a bit of a falling out with with music and the whole idea of learning music. How did that change? Yeah, I mean, it, it is um, a surprise to me most of all that I now live my life totally focused around music because when I got to high school and towards the end of primary school as well, I had a horrible music teacher. I had a violin teacher who now in retrospect as an adult I realised was emotionally abusive. I'm not making any great claims. I mean, I think lots of people in life have have been given really traumatic feedback about their musical ability. Lots of people hang on to shame about their singing voice and all sorts of things. But in retrospect, I realised that for many years I had a, a quite abusive violin teacher and she would do things like call me stupid and lazy and tell me about other students that she had that were five years old that could do things so much easier and would shame me if I didn't know the name of the composer and she would tell me about how she knew so much more than me all the time and, you know, it would make me feel terrible. I mean, now that I have taught as an adult, I can see that shaming children is a really terrible strategy to make them motivated. I don't think I wouldn't recommend it. Um, and certainly not the way that I teach, but it was very confusing for me for many years that I had all of this music bubbling up inside me. I could hear all of these things and, and music was so exciting for me. And then every week I would go felt like I was locked in this little prison for an hour and I would just cry every lesson and you I would just cry dread. in the lesson. I would cry in the lesson on the way to the lesson sometimes after that. I would, I just was scared of this of this witch basically. Did you tell your mum and dad? I mean, I think I mentioned it but kids are often complaining about chores that they don't want to do and and you know what's weird as well? I don't think that defying my parents literally ever crossed my mind. I knew that they really wanted me to have music lessons. And sometimes, I, would, I mean, so my mum's from Singapore and I think there's, and in lots of cultures, this is the same, but there's a great emphasis placed on um, respecting your elders, following the instructions. Um, and so I would sometimes go to my like Aussie friend's house as a, as a kid and see them arguing with their parents and think that was the most 
outrageous, wild thing I've ever seen. I would never do that. So I just don't think it occurred to me to be like, hey, I hate this and I'm not going back. Like I was just like, well, this is what we've got to do. Here is my fate. How did you finally escape this awful teacher? I was left in the lessons. My parents would pick me up afterwards. Um, and one time um, my, my lovely father came into the lesson and I was mid-tears. I was crying. I, I think I was a, a little bit hysterical. I was sobbing and I was like struggling to breathe. And I think he just walked in on this scene of carnage and was like, what in God's green earth is going on? And he just pulled me out and we never went back. You need your dad to come in and sort of see the scene and, and protect you. But um, yeah, it was a it was a very confusing start to music education for me. And I was like, well, music is torture. That's what we've learned. <laughs> what about singing? Were you getting singing lessons as a as a kid or as a teenager? No, I desperately wanted to sing, but I think um, sometimes singing is put in a different box to other musical instruments. Um, and I think. That is good and bad um, because, of course, singing is, is um, it, you don't have to buy anything. You've got the instrument. It's free for all of us. You just open your mouth and you're singing, you know. And so it seems a little bit less maybe highbrow for on the outside. It's sort of like, well, it's easy. You don't need lessons. You just open your face, you know, like <laughs> what else is there? Um, and so I think it was hard for me to, to sell that as an idea, um, to use the money to go towards singing lessons. Eventually, right at the end of high school and then into uni, I got some singing lessons and I paid for them myself eventually as well. And, and singing is what I always knew I, I wanted to do. Um, and it just took me a long time to get there. How did you get the money to pay for those singing lessons? Very luckily, you know, at school, while I was at school, my parents were very wonderful and, and helped me get some singing lessons right at the end there. And then when I got to uni, I just worked jobs and, and put my money where my mouth was. <laughs> Your attitude to music changed while you were at high school. Astrid, explain to me the role that Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, plays in your musical evolution. Oh my God. Okay. So I, from the outside, I understand it's a lame movie, <laughs> but it is the single, single most, um, influential piece of cultural, um, artistic, you know, influence in my life. Um, Sister Act 2, the sequel, Back in the Habit, featuring Whoopi Goldberg and Dame Maggie Smith, <laughs> is um, is like has been the guiding light in my life. Um, so I mean, you know, if we're going to get really into it, I feel like every time I watch it, it's like a mirror back to me about where I'm at in my life. So as a kid, I was obsessed with seeing um, just the singing. The quality of the singing in this movie is incredible, and I just never really heard such rich fun textural harmonies in a choir, like music had been violin and piano for me and playing sort of, you know, Beethoven and things like that. But this was like Beethoven reimagined. Like it was, it, it was just cool music that I'd never really heard before. So I loved that. And, and then when I became a teacher later on, I loved thinking about how Whoopi had her montage moment with the, like, you know, teachers can change the course of the student's life. And now as an, as an adult who runs something like pub choir, I love Sister Act still, still hits the spot for me because I think that this movie is a wonderful demonstration of how songs can be shaped around us to reflect us and that songs are not concrete fixtures. I think lots of people in the world 
hear songs on the radio or wherever they might listen to music and think of them as stuck that way. That's how the song is forever. But actually music is free. Music is fluid. And if you know how, or if you've got someone to help you in, you can shape the music to reflect anything that you want. And in Sister Act 2, back to that, have I gone too, stop me if I'm going too far. I feel like I've (laughs) just encountered an evangelist. Like I've opened the door and instead of a Mormon, there's Sister Act 2 missionary. So tell me. Can I tell you about will be my Lord and Saviour? I'm knocking on the door. Let me in. Um, Look, in this movie, I think even if you never watch it, that's okay. You're wrong. But (laughs) but it's allowed, I guess. Um, But I'll tell you what what I would encourage you to watch the, the scene is that right towards the end, this motley crew of students who weren't that enthusiastic have learned to love choir and they go to the all state championships to compete, which I don't love that. Music is not a competition, but that's where they go. They go to compete against other choirs in America and a choir just before them sings the song that they have been learning, but much better, much fancier. They look rich. They're singing um, Ode to Joy, you know, from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. They are hot to trot this choir and this like state school choir is feeling pretty down on themselves. And Whoopi Goldberg whispers to the choir, take off your robe. Let's take off these church robes and just be ourselves. And then this this choir of incredible children (laughs) takes the stage and they sing it in a new way that represents them. And it's got new harmonies. I mean, that's not how life works, everyone. You can't just tell your choir to do it fresh (laughs) at the show. But it's like this demonstration of music. When it is done truthfully it means so much more and it feels so much better to receive even as the audience. The children told the truth when they performed the song in their own way and, oh, it hits the spot. We're going to hear Joyful, Joyful. <laughs> yes. Astrid, is this the song you're talking That's about? That's the song, yeah, yeah. So um, you might have heard it with the orchestra, you might have heard it with a soprano, alto, tenor, bass choir, but this is the song reimagined to suit the children at this school and it's incredible. I love it. So given this song shot into your life uh, when you were in grade 12, was it always inevitable that you were going to try and pursue music after high school? I don't think it was inevitable, but I knew I, I had a lot of music in me. So I didn't know what to do with that information. <laughs> like I've always had music bubbling inside. I've always been able to hear stuff. I've always been, I, I don't know, uh, ready to go with music. I just didn't know what the outlet would be. So where did you start? Well, when I finished school, I, I the only thing I knew was that people who are good at music are performers. That's what I thought music meant. And so I auditioned to to get into uni and the only course that I sort of looked at was um, classical voice. Look, I've, I'm not a classical singer. I don't even really like classical singing music, um, art music, And but but I didn't know that there were other options. What happened at the audition? Well, I didn't get in. I what? went to audition and I sang my little heart out and I didn't even really know any classical songs. So I sung Phantom of the Opera because it had opera in the title. And I was like, well, it's close enough. And of course I didn't get in. It's totally wrong. Um... But I, I, I was disappointed and I was like, well, I mustn't be that good at music because I just thought, well, if you're not a good performer, what's the point? Um, and so I thought I would give it a rest and try something else, but I was so fortunate that I went to a subject selection day because I had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew I was bad at music now because I was rejected. And one of the music lecturers who had seen my 
crash, <laughs> terrible audition, James Gaskelly was there at the subject selection day and he said, oh, I remember you. I remember your audition. Even though you didn't get in, you know that you can still take music subjects and I think that you should take one called oral musicianship, A-U-R-A-L. And I'd never heard of it. What and, is it? Well, it's it's basically listening. <laughs> it's like learning to listen more deeply and to contextualise sounds. And I hadn't heard of it, but I thought, and this is something that has been kind of key in my life. Sometimes when someone believes in me, I try to go that way. <laughs> you know, like if you're, if you're faced at a crossroads and you're trying to make a decision and you're not really sure which way to go, if there's one of the pathways is someone waving you over, go that way. <laughs> and so this fella was like, you should try it. And so I did. And then that changed my life. It opened everything up for me again. So you say learning to listen, but what does, what did it actually entail when you'd rock up for your oral musician course? What, what were you being taught? How were you being taught? So it, it kind of um, sits around this word called audiation. Audiation is thinking in musical sounds even when they're not in the room present with you. So I would liken this to, say sometimes if you read a book, you, you don't always read out loud. You can read in your mind. And I think a lot of people imagine the sound of the reading. I don't, but a lot of people imagine themselves reading it in their mind even though they're not reading out loud. Audiation is doing this with music. It's looking at music or hearing it and thinking about its context in your mind. So I would go to lectures and it would be like, learning to name how far apart notes were that you were hearing or um, listening to melodies and then memorising them and writing them down. It was listening more deeply to music and contextualising the sounds and it was a revelation to me because it made me realise that I could do all of that, I just didn't know their names. It's like I learned to name my thoughts. <laughs> so did you start understanding the way your brain Yes. Operated differently. Yes. Well, I didn't, I didn't know that it was different. I just knew that I had a lot of musical thoughts and I didn't know that you could give them names. So like I can imagine melodies in my head or when I listen to Sister Act, I can hear a harm. I can hear the different layers. I can hear more than one thing at once in music. I can, I guess I've got good musical like attention to detail and recall. So when I listen to a song like that, I can hear more than the melody. I can hear the instruments and all of the textures of all of the voices kind of singing together. And so when I went to this class, it turned out that you can name the notes of the melody, even if you don't know their letter names, like you don't need to know it's A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You can call them what they are in relationship to each other using something called sulfur. We're getting too technical. So but. do you think, like I've got thoughts in my head, mm -hmm. words in my head, mm. chat in my head, mm. whether I'm talking to someone or not. Do you have that? No, I've got total silence in my mind except for music. So I, I am astonished to learn about this internal monologue situation that many people have got going on where you're like chatting to yourself. And now I'm feeling really left out that I've discovered that a lot of people, like when, when there's a lull in conversation, it turns out everyone's still having a chat except for me. <laughs> I'm just sitting there waiting for everyone to come back to the room. I don't have any chat in my mind. I don't know. I can't imagine my own voice. I don't sort of have anything else except for music in my... It's like all the resources went to this one thing. I Now that I've closed my eyes, I can't even remember what you look like. I, I There's nothing else in my brain. It's just a wasteland except for notes. <laughs> Melody, not lyrics, just music. Yeah, so I can kind of think about text and I can think about words and, and things like that. But when it comes to notes, that comes quite clearly to me. So I can still hear in my head... 
joyful, joyful that we just listened to. And I can think about not just the melody, but all of those beautiful, rich harmonies underneath. Your first experience of teaching other people to sing was when you went up to Townsville after graduation. What was different about the school that you were were taking in in choir Mm. there? It wasn't my first um, experience of teaching. I'd been doing that for about five years, but it was my first experience of non judgmental teaching. (laughs) So when I went to Townsville in 2016, I was hired by a school to take the compulsory whole school choir. So I'm not actually aware of any other high school that does that, but I think there should be more of it. But basically no child at the school had a choice. (laughs) So they had to go to assembly. And if you've ever been a teacher or been to an assembly, they can be quite dull and you kind of lose the attention of children and then you lose the will to live yeah more than that (laughs) after an hour of assembly I this nightmare would stand up on the stage and say but wait there's more you have to stay for another hour and sing with me and you have no choice but it was actually the most transformative incredible experience of my life because it unveiled to me how music with no purpose except for experiential is the goal. (laughs) I mean, it's not always the goal for everyone, but for me, it was the first time I had taught music without an end goal, except for have a lovely time. There was no, like the school was not like, we need you to take this whole school choir so that we can perform it in the Steadford or what, there was no performance. We had nothing planned. They just said, make these children work together for an hour. Let them feel good invite them in, include everyone, have a nice time. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, I had been a school teacher. I had been marking children on how good I thought they were at music. We had been doing a Steadfords and competitions, but this whole school choir, we were free. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So let's talk about how that started, Astrid. Back at the start of 2017, you were juggling a bunch of different choirs. How many were you running before Pub Choir came on the scene? So Pub Choir was my seventh choir at the same time. So I I also was teaching at a school, but I just knew that teaching wasn't for me. And I respect teachers so deeply, so greatly. I couldn't hack it. I'm not, uh, yeah, it just didn't sit right with me. And I felt like I wanted to dive deeper into the experience of music, especially as I had just come back from this incredible life-changing experience where I I had worked with young singers for no measurable outcome. (laughs) There was no metric being measured and I wanted more of that in my life. So after I taught in the day, I would 
go to one of six or seven choirs. And, and where where were they held and what kind of people came along to those choirs? All around the place. I had some school choirs before school. I had a choir. I would drive from Brisbane to Toowoomba. That's an, a 90-minute each-way drive. Beautiful group of, I, I'm sure they would be okay with me saying, sort of my parents aged, <laughs> close to retiring <laughs> um, group called that's Choir no, Bollicle. That's no slur on no, anyone. Of that's just not. a no. description. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a factual description. They were called Choir Bollicle. I would drive up there 90 <laughs> minutes after work and then back again. I would, um, I had choirs in Ipswich and I had one in Brisbane as well. I had lots of different groups around the place and I really wanted to make music with people, but I had noticed a gap, <laughs> which was that no one, who I would describe as my peer in the same sort of generation as me, none of my choirs reflected me. And I, I was confused because choir is awesome. It's so easy. You just rock up with your body. You're good enough to begin. You know, you don't have to buy any equipment. It's not like you've got to go buy some shin pads or anything. I don't know what choir you're in, you know, <laughs> maybe. But, um, you know, you just go. It's enough. And so would you ask friends, like, why don't you come along or what, what's stopping you? Yeah. What were you hearing? Yeah. I, uh, there were lots of excuses. And and I, I guess I started, I was like, maybe I'm just bad at it and they don't want to go. But, you know, people would often say, I don't have the time. Oh, it's too embarrassing. I'm really not good enough. Um, I don't like the repertoire. I don't want to wear weird clothes, you know. And then I realized that choir carries with it so much cultural baggage that has absolutely nothing to do with choir the concept. Because choir the concept is people singing together. It does not require a satin cummerbund. Is that what they're called? You know, sashes. (laughs) We don't need to parade about. We can and that's fine too. But I realised that all of those excuses that I was getting were totally irrelevant to singing with people. So what did you decide to try? So I decided to take away all of those excuses. I wanted to see if I could just get down to the crux of it. Would you sing with other people if I got rid of all of that stuff? So pub choir addressed all of those uh needs, I think. There was no auditions. We weren't going to use sheet music. So no one felt like they were behind already before it had started. There would be no soloists. I would never single someone out in this choir. You didn't have to come regularly. You could just come one time and have a nice time. I was going to pick music that people knew already so that they wouldn't feel isolated with music that's not relevant to their life. And I think really importantly, I put it in a place that was already comfortable for people. Choirs are often in, you know, community halls or the church centre, which is fine, but we meet at the pub because that's where we relax with friends. So that, that first night of, of pub choir in 2017 at a pub called The Bearded Lady, how many people did you think might turn up? I didn't know, but um, a social media message went out saying, this is what's happening. It's five bucks. If you want to have a really casual sing, come along and see what happens. And 70 people came. Now, I had a lot of other choirs at that time and 70 was definitely the most. Like 70 is a lot in a choir. <laughs> So what song did you decide to to inaugurate this new choir <laughs> experiment with? Well, I was born in New Zealand, so I wanted to do like a little homage. <laughs> so I decided to do Dave Dobbin's Slice of Heaven. And you, if you don't know it, it starts with da-da-da, boom-boom, da-da-da. And it's, you know, it was in the Footbrot Flats movie. In, I'm sure you know it. So I, I thought that I would try that song because it starts so iconically. And it's really important for me that when people come into my choir rehearsal, they feel like they are good enough and already achieving something. Because, I mean, 
good enough is different from good, right? <laughs> like when you come, I don't need you to be good, but you are good enough by just coming along and knowing that little bit of familiar melody, that's enough to begin in, in choir. So I would just sing that and then I said, can you sing it back to me? And they did because they know how it goes already and then we just go from there. And did you have everyone singing the same way at the same time or do you separate voices? What's your process? Yeah, so, I, I mean, we've all got different voices. Our voices are totally unique to us, but you can generally kind of categorise them as low and high. I do give them gender names only for context. Of course, um, with choir, I wish it weren't so, but more female presenting people join choirs. I would love to change that, but it's still true of pub choir. We get about two thirds um, who identify as female who come to the show. So what I do is I say higher voiced ladies, lower voiced ladies and men, but I also would just say Highest voices in the room go this way, lowest voices in the room go that way, and if you're unsure, stand in the middle. <laughs> and then so I give the same song three different ways. So we've got three versions of the same song that suits those different kind of voice ranges because I want everyone to feel totally comfortable and in control and in quick succession with all three of those lanes together, I'll just teach each one line by line call and response. I always just say, I'll sing first you sing back what you think I just did <laughs> and we'll go from there. If our versions are very different, we can talk about it. <laughs> but just try your best. I always encourage people just to be honest with me, sing back what you think you should be doing and it, let's go from there. Is there a moment of silence, Astrid? <laughs> never, never. There's just enough people willing to dive in. Um, and enough beer on hand that people <laughs> have a bit of liquid courage perhaps. Yeah, perhaps if that's what they need, then that's okay too. But, you know, it's strength in numbers. I think you are just so genuinely unimportant at pub choir. I say to the audience all the time, it's not about you, doll. Because people are like, oh, you know, feel the burden so deeply of their terrible voice and they think that they're going to really truly make the difference in this crowd of 1,600 people. And I just sort of feel like saying you wish your voice was that sensational, good or bad. Like there's no freaking way that your voice is going to change anything. So just open your face and do your best and we'll talk about it after. And what kind of songs work? Like did it take you a little while to work out how to pitch the, the songs that you chose? Yeah, look, this is probably the biggest challenge for me is that I truly believe the song is unimportant. Really? I just don't think it matters. Um, and I'm always trying to communicate that with the audience that even if it's a song you know, it doesn't matter because at Pub Choir we are reshaping it for our ability and for our energy levels. It's a new version at every single show. It's never been done before because I actually fresh arrange a song for every show. But people are very attached to the idea of what song it is. So, I mean, I always try and pick something that is... I can just hear the slight frustration in your voice, <laughs> Astrid, that this is a conversation you had a number of times with a number of punters. Yes. Yeah, because was... sometimes I will announce a song... And then I will get a barrage of feedback saying, I'm personally disappointed that you didn't pick my favourite song. And I'm like, I don't write back, but I sort of think to myself, Janet, out of the millions of songs in the world, you honestly were banking on getting the number one one. That, and, and, I mean, I guess my general response is you can sing your favourite song anytime you want. I'll say that again. <laughs> Any day of your life, at any moment, you can sing your favourite song. What we are doing at Pub Choir is creating a new version that exists for us in this moment. And your version of the song, that's what you'll sing in the car on the way home. But at Pub Choir, we're making a new thing. Are there requests you've got that you'll never, ever do? <laughs> 
Well, I was going to say yes, but I've actually cracked. Um, I, I have been receiving a request for Bohemian Rhapsody for truly years. <laughs> Pub Quiz has been going for five years and I reckon almost once a day, someone will email thinking they're pretty clever and they've suggested this song that's never crossed my mind before. <laughs> People always suggest it really casually. They're like, oh, I think it would be pretty cute if you did Bohemian Rhapsody next show. And but I'm like, an idea. have you ever heard it? It's quite complex. Even as a person who hears a lot of musical layers, I'm like, oh, there's a bit going on there. I might need to listen to that again. So what I've decided to do passive aggressively is to try and prove to people how difficult this song is. I've actually started to teach one tiny snippet of the song at every single show in sequential order. So every show will learn the next part of Bohemian Rhapsody and it is so hard and I think it's going to take me three to five years. <laughs> I hope I live to see the end of that, but that's the most requested song. And I finally bowed to the pressure and I'm teaching it very, very slowly. <laughs> We're going to hear one of the, the pub choir renditions of, of Life in a Northern Town by Dream Academy. Why was that a song that you chose? I love picking a song that is just a little bit out of the public consciousness, but when you hear it, it's very familiar because I feel like then you don't come with your expectations. You're, you've got a little bit more of an open mind and it's sort of like a revelation when you get there. Oh, I know this song. I love this song. This is fun. I don't know who Dream Academy are, but I love yeah, this song. Yeah, this the chorus absolutely rocks and this was the first choir mosh pit we ever had. Um, we got some taiko drums, some big Japanese drums in the room. And when they were unveiled, the audience literally jumped as one. And it was just like this sea of like 40 year old women, <laughs> hands in the air, sweating on each other, having the best time at choir. It was incredible. Astrid, how long did it take you to get that group of, of strangers to sing that, learn that song and sing it? Yeah, so I don't know who they are, right? Isn't it magical? These just random people bought a ticket and in about one hour they've learnt all the material. We have a little drinks break just so everyone gets their, their voice ready again and then we put it together at the end of the show. It never takes sort of more than 90 minutes to get to that final point and it really, really matters to me that people walk away thinking I am good enough because <laughs> listen to that, it, it sounds really good. It's not just like you know, fluffing about and, and a mess. It's like proper music. It's, it's proper music and that accompaniment, that drumming is, is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, just amazing. What plans did you and, and Pub Choir have for world domination back at the end of 2019? <laughs> what were things looking like for this collective choir, spontaneous experience? Yeah, well, I did have big dreams. and I still do. Um, but like everyone we experienced some loss um, on the back of COVID. And I think uh, it's been pretty hard for live music and that's been well documented. But we were in America touring the US. We had some sold out shows in New York and San Francisco and LA and we were on our way to the South by Southwest Music Festival. It's a huge deal to get on the lineup of that. Everyone knows the story, like everything got cancelled and we had to run back home. And I guess um, it made me reevaluate why I'm doing what I'm doing and what's the point of it anyway. I think lots of people have had that conversation with themselves in many different contexts over the last few years. On the flight home, looking at no job and, you know, there's five of us on the plane feeling a bit sad. I think I did have this renewed realisation that singing exists always and yes, it's nice to have a real-time experience with people in a room, but singing is something that is 
always there and you carry it with you at all times. And if you can be a bit creative about it, you can keep singing alive no matter how far away you are from other people. And so I guess Couch Choir was born out of that realisation that singing is still real. We carry our voice with us. Let's figure out how to how to use it. What did it feel like for you, though, as someone whose whole way of being with music is in a public space and as a performer, when lockdowns were happening or just, you know, venues weren't open and you couldn't meet with people, or if you did, they were wearing masks, how was that for you? Like, how did you keep music close to you during that period of the pandemic? That's so funny that you use the phrase close to you because that's the first song that we did online. I guess I didn't lose the sense that music was still meaningful. In fact, I, I feel like kind of everyone who, when we retreated into our homes, used music and art and culture to make ourselves feel better. And so I never really lost that sense. I mean, of course, it's easier to teach people in the room. It's easier to do it in real time when you can hear what they're doing and you can help in real time. But I guess the solution was to record the instructions like I would at a show, but just to record myself singing what I wanted people to learn and we put out the videos for free, actually. I've got such a wonderful team of helpers um, at Pub Choir. And I put out those three different harmonies, but I put them out as three separate videos. And I just put them online and I would say to people, anywhere in the world, if you feel like having a distraction or if you want something to do, have pick one of these videos that sounds the most like it suits you and spend a little bit of time singing along with it with you and your own voice and reflect on how it feels. And when you feel good enough record yourself singing along and send it back to us. And then we stitched them all together in and put them together as a virtual choir. I know we've all seen virtual choirs and we're a bit sick of it now, but in March 2020, <laughs> it felt quite new actually. And, you know, thousands of people from around the world started to get involved. And I think it, it reaffirmed, it was like another whole school choir moment where I realised that music, there's another layer of accessibility. We keep peeling back these, these unnecessary layers to discover more truth about what singing can offer us as a community. And I really believe that Couch Choir drove home for me. Music is more than entertainment. It's more than distraction. It's healing. It connected so many people and it was accessible on a level that I hadn't previously realised. Earlier this year, when people could meet in person again, Pub Choir took on a big song, uh, maybe not as big as Bohemian Rhapsody, but mm. definitely more complex than Slice of Heaven, Running Up That Hill. Why did you choose that song? <laughs> I, when you started, I was like, oh God, what song are we talking about? <laughs> They're all really hard. Um, well, uh, yeah, Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush. It came out 37 years ago, which is even before I was born, but it's renewed in pop culture because of a show called Stranger Things. I guess it was number one in the world and it was a rare moment where a song was both old and new and it was cross-generational and all sorts of different people were enjoying it at the same time and I was like, this is perfect for pub choir. And without exaggerating, I really think that it offered us an opportunity to save our business, <laughs> to, for me to save um, pub choir. Because, you know, after two and nearly three years of the public being told continuously that singing is the worst thing <laughs> for us all. I In terms I'm, of transmission. Yeah, of exactly. Virus, yeah. And so, you know, sport was happening at the same time as gigs wanted to happen and the same people and bodies were going to sport, but we couldn't go to music. So it was very confusing. And, and I think after you hear the same message for two to three years, you might start to believe it. So 
even though we could meet again, people were still a little bit hesitant. They still are. And I understand why. And I totally appreciate why. But this song, Running Up That Hill, felt like a little opportunity to be like, hey, remember? (laughs) Remember how fun singing can be and how good a song can feel and so I desperately tried to get the rights to perform well, this song I was at say, like Kate Bush is a famously private and hmm. protective artist how, how did you get her to agree to this group of Brisbane <laughs> pub goers singing a song I honestly have no idea because I uh, we we just send off the requests to the publishers so we don't you don't email Kate Bush when you want to just sing <laughs> a song but yeah, yeah I wish um <laughs> no but we send it to her publishers I mean the rare thing is that she owns 100% of that song so often in songs there's many fingers in the pie you know someone owns two percent here and there but she did it all and we love her for that we're very proud of her for that and so it was one request and her publisher did write back and they said we will try, um, but I wouldn't bank on it because, as you as you mentioned, you know, she doesn't often say yes. Um, and so I, I sort of was umming and ahhing and thinking of what else I could do and then suddenly the, the permission came back. So somewhere along the line someone asked her and she said yes. I don't know what the conversation was and what a legend for saying yes. So that already was a huge deal. I was like, we are legends. And I told everyone who follows Pub Choir, I usually try not to make it about the song but in this instance, I was like, this is quite important. It's the song. Get on board. How hard was it to teach? It was a really hard song. I think um, that's why Kate Bush is so eternal is because her music is complex and unique and layered and and not, you know, it doesn't fit the mould of many pop songs. And so it was quite challenging on the night. Um, but I think that everyone in the room sensed it was important and special because it was in the news about how it was number one everywhere in the world. You know, I think sometimes audiences all agree on how serious a song is. <laughs> and so in that room, the, there was an energy, it was sort of electricity in the air. And, and I really wanted to give people the full experience. So rather than trying to make them sing every complex detail, I also arranged for a string quartet, the Queensland Chamber Orchestra Camerata, to come along and accompany accompany us. Um, and so I, I tried to get all of, all of the layers of that song for the audience to experience and then get them as the lead singers. And um, it's such a good performance that they put together. What happened after that that performance, after that song, you know, that you just have 90 minutes to get happening and it's filmed and videoed and put out on your, your Facebook page or whatever? What happened next? Well... Everyone who knows me is sick of me talking about this, but Kate Bush emailed everyone. Okay, stop what you're doing. <laughs> Kate Bush, with her beautiful fingers, typed out an email and, and she sent us a note. And, you know, she's reclusive. She she doesn't need to talk to people about her music that came out 37 years ago. So what an honour. I'm. It was such a thrill to open up my email and just see this note that said, it was utterly wonderful and I'm so touched and I love seeing how joyful you all are. And, you know, there's no, why would she lie? (laughs) I truly believe she meant that. And to have that email was incredible. And yeah. Is that the secret? Do you think that it, it just makes people feel good what you do at Pup Choir? I think it makes people feel connected. Trent Dalton, who's a very well-acclaimed author and one of Brisbane's own, came to Pub Choir once and he said to me of the experience, Pub Choir is the sound of people agreeing. (laughs) Look, I think that's true of every choir, (laughs) but I love that 
I, I feel like that summarises exactly the feeling on the night. So we might not be the best. No one's trying to be the best, I hope. Um, but what we're trying to do is agree with each other on what we want to achieve by the end of tonight. And we don't know each other and we may never know each other, but we all want to share this goal for an evening and it feels good. Astrid, what a delight to speak to you. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. What an honour. Thank you so much. Astrid Jorgensen, and you can get all the details for upcoming Pub Choir events at the Pub Choir website and do check out some of those videos of their performances as well. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.